You're listening to the Precision Shooting Podcast, discussing all aspects of precision and long-range rifle shooting. This episode is brought to you by Projectile Warehouse. Find your perfect projectile. And now, over to your hosts. Hello and welcome to the Precision Shooting Podcast. This is Rusty and uh, this is episode number 45. With me tonight uh, is the the old crew. How are you, gentlemen? Greg and Andrew. Proper Greg and Andrew. Proper Greg. I like it. Yeah, good, Rusty. There you go. Yeah, I'm going well. How are you, Andrew? Yeah, good. I'm just wondering who improper Greg is. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's me with a few drinks, I guess. <laughs> you know, that's inappropriate, Greg. Uh, very good. Well, uh, my my point being that uh, that uh, special Greg is not on the podcast. We're back to regular Greg or normal Greg or proper Greg, whichever Greg you uh, prefer. Um, but the other Greg is back in back in Sydney, and uh, we're probably more importantly we're back in Australia, um, and and doing our first podcast of the year, mid no late February, isn't it? Almost the end. Almost the end. So a couple of well, a few months off since we've done we've done a studio episode, so to speak. How you guys been? Yeah, good, good. Yeah, I've been uh, busy doing a fair bit of hunting. So uh, over oh, the Christmas cool. break and early this year. Tell us more. Yeah, no, I've. Uh, I think the last episode we had, I mentioned, uh, I grabbed a, a thermal scope. Just, just grabbed one. Yeah, just grabbed one off the just shelf. You know, just as I was walking past. But, <laughs> you do. Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, I had to wait for that, and it was a long wait. But um, yeah, just been getting out, chasing foxes and, and and rabbits, just some feral control. But yeah, just getting loving it, basically loving it. It's really uh, changed the whole hunting philosophy and. You know, you just feel like you're creeping around in the shadows, and it's uh, yeah, it's 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 a really good experience. I'm really loving it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I I came out with you. Was it? I'm not sure if that was since we've done a podcast or not. No, it wasn't. No, we haven't done one since. And mm, that's right. Yeah. No, it's quite spectacular to watch. But I think it, I think the thermal really suits the properties that you're on. You're on yeah. the areas where you you don't you're not on big properties. Yeah, pretty small, pretty tight. Mm. Um, I have taken it out on large properties, and okay. it is good as a like a spotting rig. You can see foxes quite a distance off, like mm-hmm. oh, probably five to seven hundred. So you can sort of see this spot, although it's not easily identifiable uh, by shape. It's easily identifiable by movement. So you can use that to quickly s- scan a whole yeah, right. area of stubble and then home in. So it's it's yeah, it's it's really really good. Yeah, nice. I had a, had a shot with Greg the other night as well. That's it's an eye opener. Isn't it? Oh yeah, yeah. It's yeah, I think I've converted you to the the dark side, haven't I? All you need is some of your money, and we'll be able to buy one each, I guess. <laughs> it, mate. Grab a visa, get into it. Ah, <laughs> oh, speaking speaking of visas, your friends from Defiance says hello. Yes, yes, I heard that podcast. Yeah, <laughs> g'day, fellas. Keep sending them over. <laughs> oh, very good, very good. Yeah, well, obviously, um, my my uh, ventures have been fairly public. I've uh, made them. Fairly well known. Hope you guys have enjoyed some of the content from over uh, over in the US. Um, we, um, yeah, we. I think by the stage that this podcast goes up, everything that we did uh, would be up online, um, which is uh, good to uh, to hopefully broaden some ideas and some thoughts. You uh, enjoy seeing the photos and enjoy being at work and not where I was, gentlemen. Yeah, I was pretty jealous. Um, I, <laughs> That's I did, really what I was going for. I, I did like a lot of the gear you you did touch on uh, in your in your interviews. There's mm-hmm. some pretty interesting uh, little bits of technology. I'm a technology guy, as we know, gadget guy. Um, so yeah, there were some nice little bits of kit. Yeah, uh, floating around there. Certainly. Oh, just also making pretty handy contacts. I think with you know, putting faces to names and so on. So yeah, it was it was cool to meet, and, and certainly um, the the. One of the joys is that a lot of people are pretty happy to continue to, to chat, um, and we've got a, a list up there. Oops. Got a list up there on the wall, actually, for a, a bunch of names of guys who are uh, happy to do a, um, a podcast with us sometime over the course of the next Great. year. So there'll be certainly some intervie- interviews coming through, um, some out of the States, some out of locally as well, um, with some really interesting uh, people, some stories to tell, some uh, competition shooters, some manufacturers, and a bit of everything in between. So, hopefully, we can produce some pretty interesting content to uh, to keep the keep things rolling, keep things moving, which is good. Yeah, you had a question, Andrew. Possibly. <laughs> about, about Bryce. 
Ah, uh, yes, yes. I, d- I did have a question about brass. Um, I think you mentioned briefly, I, I probably wasn't paying full attention at the time, but at the PRS finale you attended, yep. brass wasn't collected by the shooters. Is that the case? or? Uh, sort of, sort of yes, sort of no. So um, sometimes on some stages they got a quick chance to, to pick up the brass, if, you know, particularly if they had a little bit of time left. But because they were pushing through so many people so quickly... Um, they really, uh, they really sort of just you know moved them on without collecting their brass. So, what happened is, then at the end of the day, the ROs would pick all the brass up, put them in a bucket, and then that bucket was all collected together across all the stages. And then at the the place we were all staying uh, at the dinner, it was all just poured out all over the floor, and you pretty much had seagulls coming in just picking <laughs> up their brass and uh, gone in were, seconds. Well, <laughs> no. <laughs> Because people were going through trying to find their brass. Yeah, right. Because they'd labelled them, you know, they'd do three stripes of green or, or one oh, pink. So yeah. they knew it was going to happen and yeah, yeah, marked so it up. It's obviously not, not, the cool fir- not the first time. Yeah. Um, and so they, uh, yeah, but it was, I have to admit it was quite amusing watching all these uh, people <laughs> um, on hands and knees picking through brass. Mm-hmm. Um, not the most glamorous moment, but. Um, well, you got, uh, you know, fire form brass who probably spent. Ridiculous yeah. time That's and effort it. to uh, shoot as gold, know, get them all ready it? to go. So. Yeah. Completely understand it. Um, still didn't didn't make it look any any more amusing. Uh, it was quite quite funny to watch. So yeah, um, but obviously they do that to make the thing run run smoothly. And um, yeah, yeah. But that brass is obviously worth a bit of money to the individual shooters. So they got they made the effort to get it. Most of them did anyway. Yeah, yeah, the shot show, and then uh, and then PRS, and uh, um, a few other bits and pieces. Oh, we've uh, we've been locked out of stuff. So, well, speaking speaking of PRS, um, we uh, one of the articles went up today um, about the or yesterday, sometime sometime in the last few days, um, about the calibers used um, uh, in. Uh, in that, which is part of the series from Precision Rifle Blog, who every year updates some details about what the pros use. Um, Andrew has locked himself out of the iPad. Um, it's done pretty well. <laughs> so just slide it aside, mate. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Maybe not that one. Maybe uh, press. Go, go back and press the button. Andrew's actually quite good with technology when it's turned off. Um, <laughs> so you basically put my favourite calibre in and put an extra zero at the end. What did you put in? <laughs> two four three. <laughs> two no, four two four three won't, won't work, mate. Three three eight. <laughs> there you go. No, it made it work. So, um, so we've got this uh, this article in front of us, guys. And one of the the trends I've seen is that the uh, the old six mil is getting pretty popular. Absolutely, not surprised. I I actually probably was one of the pioneers of the six by forty seven. So, you were? Yeah, absolutely. Did you claim it? Yeah, I'll go there. Bold. <laughs> 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 well, I did build my first one oh, a number of quite a number of years ago. Yeah, mm. yeah, it would have been a while now. And I think Greg, you followed shortly after. Oh yeah, yeah. No, it's uh, covered in the earlier podcasts. Yeah, but um, it's a pretty good choice for these PRS style shoots. Well, why do you think, uh, Rusty? Obviously, you witnessed firsthand the PRS competition. The what would you say the predominant reason is for the shift to the six mils over? Or the six and a half was still up there as well, but over larger calibers in particular. Recall, recall management. Um, from what I, um, and I asked, you know, I spoke to some of the guys about it and, and why they went to the sixes and such, and um, yeah, a lot of lot of information about recall being able to be back on target quicker, not losing the target at all, and being able to the follow up shot was was more critical. Um, a lot of a lot of targets on the particular stay a uh, particular um, shoot we were on for the finale you had to hit the target multiple times there was not there was less like shoot the target once move on so being able to go bang and then quickly bang again um Mm. was was pretty important um particularly the stages i saw anyway um whether that's true commonly across the prs events i I couldn't tell you being to one so um but yeah from from what i saw be able to do that second shot on the same target was really critical um so that's probably probably been part of the reason the six mil's gone there it's it, ballistically it's obviously very good i remember when you did the reports on it Greek, a lot of differences six and six fires were very very similar in that regard um probably what it did what it has lent itself to is a little bit more challenging for the ro's to spot that's what i was just about yeah. to say i mean obviously longer 
targets, you know, there's obviously less energy on target, so they're going to move the targets less, but could make the calling a hit somewhat more difficult. Yeah, and there's probably a couple of things that, that we saw that was um, put in place to sort of counteract that. The target design was quite good, um, was actually very good, and, and so it sort of lends itself to being uh, a little bit more um, able to be recognised, um, the movement, it was a little bit more prominent. Um, flashes were pro- more present, so um, the Curly from Light React had uh, oh, quite a few setups out there, and they were really, really good. Um, so we uh, we got to see those little flashes sort of going off. One thing about those things, uh, though, we did see is that um, on some stages, if your bullet hit low, it actually flick a rock into the target, which is enough to make the flasher go. So the flasher isn't a guaranteed hit; it's an mm. indication. That um, if you yeah if the arrow was thinking it was a hit it'd back up the yeah, thought. Yeah, so it's a secondary indicator. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. Which is probably pretty good, mm. pr- pretty critical to be aware of. Mm. Um, otherwise, you probably would have thought you got a few hits. So, yeah, it was pretty um pretty interesting experience. But that's I think the the big shift to the six mils. Um, and I'm I, I'm guessing from my from what I've been observing, what seems to happen a bit is that there'll be a shift into something and there'll be quite a spread of calibers, which is what we're seeing in the six mil. There's quite a, um, a spread of, well, in, the, in that top hundred, there's, uh, what have we got, eight, nine, nine or so different calibers in six mil, sorry, different cartridges in the six mil. And the six five was probably pretty similar, but then it would sort of narrow down to just a few more common ones, um, the ones that obviously really performed well. So we'll hope, we'll, may see that in the six mil again where we start seeing a few less of the the fringe ones and more of the the ones that become very prominent in the discipline and i noticed too like the the lap brass both in the 6.5 and the 6 are leading the list so you know and i think back when we did that analysis for my 6x47 you know we we commented back then that you know that brass is you know pretty much the industry leader in terms of consistency so and see why that's sort of still being maintained at the top of the list. Yeah, now with um, Lapua bringing out 6.5 Creedmoor brass with small primers and small flash holes, mm. that would be, that will be enticing for a few people. Yeah, yeah, could see a shift there next year. Is that is that yeah. out? Do you know whether that brass has been released? I believe it has in the US. I'm not sure whether we've seen any here, Rusty. Well, it wasn't there when, when we were there. Um, we know a few guys that had lots, lots on order. Um I I heard March or April, but I I think you're right. Actually, I think it is some of it has. Yeah, landed. I think I saw the six point five guys actually had some on hand. Of all people, who who would, who else would? I believe you. Uh, you had a pretty good interview with those guys. Yeah, we had. They were they were sensational people. I mean, I could probably go on for the entire this entire episode about some amazing people we met, but those those two gentlemen stood out. Um, uh, for us, they really took the time to to spend time with us, and that's why, why the, uh, we did that interview with them and end up its own its own podcast because it was nearly twenty five minutes anyway. Um, so we sort of separated that one out, uh, which was pretty amazing. So, um, and I know that Ed is real keen to get over to Australia. So yeah, very good, um, Ed. If you if you happen to be listening, uh, Greg will definitely take you out with a thermal and and pulverize some uh, rabbits and yeah, foxes. You've got a few good spots for that sort of thing. That's worth that's worth watching. Yeah, very much so. Um, uh, Greg, you probably should mention your um, your YouTube channel you've actually started. Oh yeah, so um, while we're here, yeah, with the with the thermal, um, you, you can get a direct video feed straight out of the unit. So I've just been recording uh, some of the shots, you know, hits and misses. Yes, unfortunately, I do miss. Um, so yeah, I've been do up. You just like, pay the fox to come back and have another shot. Yeah, that's that, that works. Good. Um, so yeah, I've I've just started a YouTube. Um, channel just put some of those uh, hunting vids up so tell us what it is yeah the channel's called uh, terminal performance cool. um yeah so just whack that into youtube and you'll you'll get my channel and yeah check them out yeah worth watching if you like seeing glowing things explode and splatter everything <laughs> pretty much describes it <laughs> just to narrow it down <laughs> yeah sorry I, andrew I'm, you've got the article not, there yeah no i do i just um there's a a quote in here from uh where is he? Tyler Payne, who yep. finished first overall in the um, in the Paris. He did, and just won the uh, gas gun shoot, actually, as well. Oh, first wow. gas cool. gun shoot. 
Well, his, uh, his quote here is, get one calibre, learn your data, and don't chase the new shiny. Yeah. I think uh, that's a pretty... Our friend out in the north will uh, agree with that one. Yes, yeah. yeah. He, well, I mean, it's true. It's a very valid statement. But yeah. it, I just sort of wonder how you know, trends will affect, you know, see what we see here, for example, in the, uh, the local sort of um, yeah. practical type shoots. Hmm. Um, and whether, you know, over a period of time, there'll be sort of a couple of standouts that, through their performance only, um, sort of settle at the top. You know, where yeah, does the evolution the of that end? Yeah, yeah. Mm. yeah it'd be interesting to see whether or not it follows the same path here that it does in the States. I think it probably will. Yeah, yeah uh, I kind of, I kind of wish it, it would do its own thing, but it'd, like maybe three hundred eight would dominate or something like that, or not specifically. But uh, it'd be kind of cool to see it go take a slightly different turn. But the the yeah. data backs up the way that the US the US guys yeah. are going, so it's probably the most sensible, isn't it? And I mean, you look at yeah, a very good percentage of of firearms and related equipment that we see here is US manufactured so yep i think there's a lot of reasons why we do follow those trends i mean mm. yeah, people are using it you know the top competitors are using them for a reason they work i guess so. oh yeah yeah. Well, yeah maximizing their chances of a hit absolutely yeah. and, and then yeah it's the same thing i mean now what well probably even 12 months ago you go into a gun shop and ask for a 6.5 creedmoor probably the, you know, half the people behind the counter would look at you and go what's that Mm. whereas now you're presented probably the seven different guns to be able to pick up and, and there was more at shot there was just yeah. seven uh, 6.5s now everywhere and 6mm Creedmoor starting to come through so you, you're certainly seeing that the industry trying to catch up to the, the top level competitors yeah. as to where that's going so yeah it was um, it's certainly interesting to see we're not going to go fully in depth with that, um, that um, article like we did last year when they released them um, but we will bring them up as they come through. But make sure you guys are following that. That's um, the Precision Rifle blog. Um, Google that and you'll find it, no doubt. And they do a series called What the Pros Use. So at the end of the PRS season, they tally up the data over the course of the year and they put it out there. So yeah, great articles. Mm, really, real, really well done. I've got, a, I've got a dilemma, gentlemen. I'm wondering if you might be able to provide some advice. Certainly. May not be well informed or <laughs> didn't useful. say didn't say good advice, I just said advice. So just just try it, try the best or your worst, one of the two. Um so as I've spoke about last year, I'm putting together a bit of a change for my rifles. I'm doing the intention was to do my two sixty, which is sitting over there in the hog saddle that we uh, we got delivered today by Huntsman with a new Norwegian bipod, uh, tripod, which is uh, kind of funky. Anyway, that that aside, um thanks Huntsman for that. Um, so I got my 260 there and that was going to go into one of the chassis from Precision Rifle Products. And then I was going to put my Remington, redo that into a 2D3 uh, with a heavy barrel, similar sort of weight barrel, um, same scope, same action, uh, sorry, similar action into a, um, same, the same chassis and then eventually do a 22 in the same sort of thing, pretty close to it. So the idea being the 23 or the 22 could be training rifles with the 260 being the actual competition gun. So the, the plan is still going ahead. Problem of, uh, one of the options I thought of, well, I've got a stiller action there with another barrel on it, but I could take that off and, and really use it, use the matching actions for um, this build. That way the, the training rifle would be as physically close as possible to the exact same Everything, same mount, same scope, same everything. Problem is that my stiller actions are all for a 308 bolt face. Now I have um, I have emailed stiller to see what the options are to get another bolt, but I'm suspecting that'll be relatively expensive. Um, yeah, it'd probably sort of half the price of a, a complete action and bolt. Yeah, which normally. is probably a little bit out of the budget uh, at this stage. Um, so the other option was to do I use the Remington action I've got, which is a two to three setup, um, and then just try and get the bolt handled it to to fit the same, or do I build it to twenty two two fifty with the same concept? I wouldn't go with the two fifty option just from the fact you you know your barrel life is considerably reduced over the two two three. Yep. I mean, I'd have to have a look. It would depend on where the ejector is set up on the um, stiller bolt, but you could always look at getting the bolt face bushed down to reduce the the bolt face size. 
Just okay. 223. I'm not sure offhand whether that would work. I'd have to have a look at it. But okay. it's a possible option. That, so that, yeah, that I figured you'd be the one to ask that I didn't know whether that was a thing. Yeah, I mean, it, I haven't actually done it or haven't looked into doing it. So I'd have to have a, have a look at the bolt and measure it. But it may work. Um, okay. Certainly, if anybody's played with that, let us know. Yeah, please do. Yeah, the 250 is a good round in itself, but that'll be, you know, probably burn a barrel out quicker than a 260 would. <laughs> Certainly quicker than a 223 would. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that was I just uh, thinking of other options. So, do I do I just trade it off and just use the uh, the Remington action that I've got and uh, and pull the two D three on that? Depends how close you want to be, I guess, as to mm. exactly the same. And it depends what the focus of your training is too. I think you know if if you're focused on your positional movement, yeah. um, I don't know that it's going to be massive. But yeah, you'd just probably have to do a short adjustment period for when you go into comp. But I think you could still quite easily practice positional changes and movement and, and you know, your bag use and all those sorts of good things uh, without too much difficulty at all. Um, yeah, that, that's that my thoughts. 2 anyway. to 3 really is designed as a barricade trainer. Yep. Um, I've yep. trained skills on either the, two, uh, the 22 or the 260, um, but really just, just working on the barricade. Yeah, I mean, in that regard, I think it'd probably be fine just to use that in that you look at it, it's still the same lug set up on the yep. bolt. It's, it's got the same sort of angle of throw, you know, bolt throw. Yep. Uh, everything really, I mean, is in the same place. It's They use compatible triggers, so you could set it up with the same trigger to set your trigger to feel the same. It's probably more of the, yeah. probably the more important element is the yeah, trigger. Yeah, like everything's yeah. in the same spot, like all the controls are the same, so... I mean, I would suggest that actual the actual feel of the gun won't change. Is probably um, you know very very minimal difference. Yeah, if I try and match bolt handles on them, they're probably going to be pretty similar. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you could quite easily put the same exactly the same bolt handle on. Yep. Uh, bolt knob on anyway, so yep. you, yeah, it'd be in the same spot. So when you go to cycle it, it's right in the same spot in relation to your hand. So yep. that'd probably work. Mm. It'd certainly be the cheaper, more convenient option than looking at bushing a bolt face, and yeah, well, you okay. could just buy maybe three uh, defiance actions. Just borrow Greg's. Yeah. That's probably the smart thing. To yeah, do. yeah, yeah. Get on, yeah. Sam. Needline. <laughs> <laughs> oh, very good. Um, all right, cool. Well, that's uh, that's good to take on board. I think um, I'll, I'll look at that bushing option because that might still be a good option uh, if it's not as much as the bolt. Replacing the bolt. It's a bit of a permanent option, though, I guess, is the trouble. Oh, okay. Yeah. So. All right. Oh, well, that's all right. I'm uh, here for the long haul, I guess. Well, while we're, while we're speaking about rifle builds and such, yeah. I, well, I said we spoke about how I went and um, thermalized a few things with Greg the other night. Yeah. Yep. I, it's convinced me I need to, A, buy a thermal scope and uh, B, set up a rifle yep. specialized for that. Um, so. Well, what are you thinking? Well, I'm thinking a um, XLR carbon chassis, right, with a folding s- adapter because being legal here now, yeah, can do uh, just for convenience of you know transporting inside a vehicle yeah. and that sort of thing. Perfect. Um, and the carbon chassis, obviously, it's not com- all carbon, but the foreign is mm-hmm. um, keeps the weight down, uh, and also allows sort of modular mounting of. Well, you know, Greg and I have discussed a uh, you know mm. a rail mounted rangefinder such as the uh, Silencer Co. Or similar, yep. Um, and use a probably a Tika action because they're they're very smooth and they work. And running it through the XLR chassis, you can use AI mags or AI compatible mags, which mm. is a pretty big deal. Mm. And putting a probably a twenty inch uh, proof research carbon barrel on there. Very nice. And probably two four three, mm. just from the point of view of brass is very commonly available. And if I lose a few cases, it's no big deal. Mm. Yeah, extend and your reach a bit. Yeah, and certainly, you know, capable of taking pigs or deer, or some of the larger things we've got here, as well as exploding rabbits and whatnot. So. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. yeah. It's funny, because that sounds like a very similar build to someone else I spoke to who's thinking about building something oh, well, similar. Oh, yeah, yeah, well, um, Andrew showed me, and I thought, gee, that's a good idea, Andrew. I might bloody copy you. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Uh, so that's, uh, I've, I've ordered one. And, uh, <laughs> yep. So... Uh, I guess, you know, follow the leader, I guess. Yeah, no, <laughs> Story of your life. If anyone comes up with a good yes. idea, I'll immediately steal it. 
So, um, <laughs> so everyone tell Greg your your good ideas. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, I've ordered one, but yeah, it could be some time. They've got to sort out export licenses and that sort of good stuff. But it's all going ahead. And um, but yeah, maybe in two, maybe three months ish plus, it might be a bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, something will land. So, yeah, very good. So yeah. that's you're going to change your two four three into that, or you? No, I'm, I've I've only got the I'm using the two two three for the thermal at the moment okay. because um, when you use thermal, it's pretty easy to get foxes in. It's part of the yeah, advantages. Okay. You is, don't need is they, the distance. Yeah, they pretty much just come in and they just stand there because <laughs> they they're not there's nothing for them to fear. So it's, it's the two two three has been they don't a good know fit. You very well. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the two two three has been a good fit to that. So I'll probably just drop that in straight away. Um, yep. But, you know, well down the track, I'll probably look at, you know, maybe when that barrel's burnt out, I'll probably look at going to 243 um, and getting rid of my old 243. But it, same as what uh, Andrew's planning is just a dedicated night sort of thermal build. Yeah. Um, so that that's not, you know, a long range sort of rig. It's more a, a sort of medium short um, and just lightweight, manoeuvrable, easy to move inside a vehicle. Um, so yeah, that's the plan. Yeah, yeah nice. I was gonna. Oh, sorry, Andrew. Go yeah, ahead. I just, I just noticed when we were out the other night, Greg. I mean, it's a, it's a standard Tika varmint, I believe, isn't it? You've yeah, got? Uh, super varmint. Super varmint. Yeah. So yeah, you know, full length rifle mm, with a the, cape. <laughs> and the uh, obviously the scope's fairly heavy and bulky. And I mean, I was sitting in the passenger seat. Greg just got that one, by the way. Yeah, no, it took a while. I'm um, slow, but I'm worth waiting for. I was I was in the uh, passenger seat of Greg's car, and you've got a rifle with a really top-heavy scope on it, and you're trying not to knock it into stuff. Mm. Mind you, Greg could afford another two or three if I did break it. So it's yeah, kind of really awkward. Mate. <laughs> it's seven grand a pop. It's uh, so the concern. My concern was if you could make it a lot more compact. So you, when you're not actually shooting, you can have it folded in completely within the vehicle mm. between your legs, barrel down, of course. Yeah. Um, you know, the hence a, a shorter barrel. Yeah, it makes know, a lot of sense. Makes with a, a folding sense. adapter on the stock um, would yeah. be pretty handy. And we've already, we spoke about, uh, and obviously not every state in our country allows folders. So with the modular kind of design of those chassis, if we we're going to go into state, to a state that didn't allow it, it'd be easy to take the folder out and mm. and be compliant. Swap it in with a rigid. Yeah. Yep. So a lot of. Uh, so that's the thing too, you know. It's it's, and and you're probably better at explaining this than me, Andrew. Is that it's modular, with the butt stocks, and you've got variable um, options there. Um, I might hand over to you on that. Yeah, I mean, yeah. well, the XLR chassis basically can can utilise any AR rear which is hmm. i mean massive amount of options really uh you know I'd, i would probably be inclined to use the 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 standard option that comes from xlr with that carbon chassis because it's light yeah um you know it gives you good length of pull adjustment and and cheek you know position as well um but i mean it, it, sky's the limit yeah yeah uh, i mean you just all you gotta do is type in ar butt stocks and there's millions of them available yeah, so yeah. It's a good system and you can use whatever you feel comfortable mm. with. You know, if you were to, to get it in and, and not like the way it felt, mm. you just to stock away, unscrew it, the yeah. nut on there and off it comes, yeah. new one on. So. Yeah. And then the other element of that is once I get the stock in or the chassis in and, and I'm up and shooting, the thing with one of the disadvantages of, of thermal is, is there's no real well, difficult depth perception. So... What may look like 50 metres away may be a lot more or what is a lot, looks like a long way away is actually quite close. It's a little bit of a mixed bag. So judging range through the viewfinder is pretty difficult. So, um, you know, talking with Andrew, you know, about different uh, range finder options that are mounted and sighted into the, the crosshair. Um, so you, you talked about the Silencer Co range finder. Yeah, that's the one that's certainly getting the best reviews mm. um, I had a look and Armasite who, who make thermal images and thermal scopes they produce one as well I haven't been able to find a lot on that but certainly mm. the Silencer Co is probably the most cost effective and it's available and it's in, in good common usage so it's mm. a, proven to be a solid little unit so. yeah so 
Yeah, that's that's where I'm heading. It's a full hundred percent Andrew copy. <laughs> is where I'm heading. So. So when are you ordering your proof research barrel there, Greg? Oh, you know I haven't gone that far, mate. Well, you'll be glad to know the guy from Proof Research is also called Greg, so you might be able to get oh, Greg. Sounds like a top bloke already. <laughs> yeah, you might be able to get some sort of Greg discount deal going on there, maybe. <laughs> or you just buy that company as well. Yeah. We, were, we were taking bets on how much of the uh, exhibitors that shot you owned. Oh. <laughs> 70%. Yeah, we think about 70% of floor one. Hundred percent of the uh, military and law enforcement section. Yeah, all of those, of course. Didn't really need to be said. I don't think Andrew it's working assumed. on it. <laughs> it's only so. a visa card away. <laughs> it's a pretty impressive visa. The other thing that is probably um, worth noting, uh, worth mentioning, is that the NT boys are putting on their shoot. Uh, they've announced dates for it, which is in August. Don't ask me which dates because uh, I haven't looked them up. But um, we'll get. Butters on here and have a bit of a, a chat to him about it when we get closer to it. But uh, yeah, so early August, um, I probably should be able to find out because I have booked flights to it because I'm actually going to go to it and uh, and go shoot a comp rather than be involved with running one, uh, which will be a, a, a change. Um, so yeah, but that's uh, certainly going to be a worthwhile shoot. There's some more news and info to come out of, about that one in time. Um, but yeah, they did. A, it's a two-day event. Again, like last time, a bunch of different stages. Should be, uh, I think they're looking 30 or 40 shooters. So, yeah, good mm, good numbers. numbers. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Being so. in August in Darwin, you shouldn't have the uh, torrential downpours they had the other day for their shoot. Oh, no. It looks yeah, the, um, what a flooded the humidity. Out. Oh, August is beautiful there, but... Uh, yeah, August is yeah. nice. Yeah, yeah, which is... Yeah, uh, give it a month or two and it's not so nice. Oh, that's the main reason I'm going. I'm not sure I'll go to the shoot, but I'll certainly go up to uh, Darwin, which will be good. I can tell you the dates. Um, the must be the 5th of August, 5th and 6th of August. Um, so listening, if you're listening, you want to get along to that in Darwin or make good on the weather there, um, get in touch with uh, NT Practical Rifle. Um or it might be practical rifle NT. Anyway, we'll look it up, and uh, you uh, certainly will be able to get involved. Should be a good shoot. You guys going to make it up at all? I strongly doubt it, but uh, right. I'll be there. Yeah, in, not in sure you're allowed. Not sure allowed thermals on the range. <laughs> Don't worry, it'll be <laughs> yeah, hot, hot enough targets, that everything mate. will be the same temperature. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's right. Too hot. Yeah, yeah. yeah I think if I was there, I'd be out hunting pigs. Good, mm. good. I reckon that's one of the stages. <laughs> Probably where that range is. It wouldn't surprise me if they had the odd <laughs> pitch invader. Run across the range, yeah. Yeah, very good. I don't know if you guys heard, but one of the, um, in the other podcasts, um, when Special Greg was setting up the spotting scope on one of the stages, he's he set it up and it was on a pig stage. Uh, the, the target was a pig. Mm. Had a mob of pigs run past. <laughs> It was in Texas, I guess. What's that? He's <laughs> just gone temptation. Uh, uh, funny had a gun at the moment. Mm. So he was in yeah. the US in Texas at a shoot with no gun. Yeah, yeah. The life of an arrow. <laughs> it was a. Uh, it was a uh, good fun. Um, we did get we did get a shoot actually at the um, at the PRS a brief one. Um, we used a. Um, we used an impact uh, precision action uh, from uh, and, and put together by Stu- uh, I could probably say this wrong Studeville Precision I believe is the way to mispronounce it effectively um, and it was it was only two to three but it still did pretty well it wasn't far off the eight hundred meter mark uh, or eight hundred yards um, so we got a bit of a run through that on a few stages that was good mm-hmm. you also had a bit of a shoot. Up in Vegas, didn't you? Briefly. Yep. Yeah, I think we had about 35 rounds between three of us. Um, but Felipe took us out um, from um, Owen's Armoury. And he, uh, yeah, he put us through. That's where we got to shoot a defiance action, Greg, because you won't let Oof. me shoot any of yours. <laughs> so um, I had to shoot Felipe's. And, um, yeah, it was, uh, we, yeah, just out in the desert in Nevada and went for a bit of a shoot. Not a not a big one. And pretty much just chose a rock and tried our yep. best. But, um yeah, we we're probably well underprepared. It was just one of those things we go, right, well, um, you know, Felipe's gone, oh, I've got some rounds left. Uh, what are you guys doing on Saturday morning? All right, we'll go out for a ray, for a shoot. Mm-hmm. Didn't really have everything he needed. It was all just there as demo stuff for um, for the shot. Yep. But still very kind of him to take us out there and That's have it. a crack. And we certainly did that. Mm-hmm. Uh, real nice rifle to shoot. That was, oh, I 
think it was a six by forty seven off memory. So yeah, it was a nice gun. But of course it had the big big black um silencer on the uh, front, which obviously oh, nice. you're not so used to it. So um well yeah, made it made it easy. So how far out was uh, the rock? The rock, yeah, yeah, a, lo- a long way from the bullet, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, we didn't have a rangefinder or anything. Oh, so okay, we just had a crack and dialed in. We were sort of yeah. guessing a fair bit, but oh, I fair think enough. We, we we brought it back to roughly about four hundred meters, and we we, oh, were, yeah. we were cracking that, so yeah, we were yeah. happy with that. But the could have been eight hundred, twelve hundred. Yeah, you know, that's it. Just you know, willing to bit ad hoc. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, so we gave it all up and then went to Top Golf and just played uh, played on the driving range and had beers instead. Yeah, it was a hard trip you had there. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that part was uh, probably quite good. So, so uh, we got an email um, that we thought we should attend to. Um, you guys haven't read this one yet. Uh, this is from Dean Swagemakers. And he writes, G'day guys, I've stumbled across your podcast and caught up in the last few months or so. Uh, he's enjoying it. Uh, you guys are a bunch of wankers. Uh, he doesn't say that. He says something far more positive, but I'll go on with that. Uh, got a question about wind correction. Say you're shooting at a target, whatever it may be. Paper still all game at long range. How do you go about correcting it either by holdover or dialing for varying winds, both in speed and direction between the shooter and the target? For example, shooting at 1,000 metres. Um, your shooter has a three o'clock wind at five mile an hour at 500 meters is a nine o'clock, uh, five mile an hour wind at a thousand meters. There's a three o'clock, 10 mile an hour wind. Anyway, cheers, uh, and enjoy the show. Yada, yada. From Dean. Okay. So um, a nice, simple question to get started with. I, w- I would say there's no way particularly in a field situation of being able to determine the wind speed and direction particularly direction that accurately at those longer ranges i mean if you've got nothing other than yep. mirage and uh, you know leaves and grass and that sort of thing to mm. determine it you, you're more sensing general direction um, well, this, this and is where general ex- speed experience kicks in yeah, I mean, mm. if you're looking at something a thousand meters away, it, it's very difficult. You can see to, the the direction of the wind and yeah. the speed, mm. but is it to you know, average is it, it a three o'clock or a five o'clock at that yeah. range? Very yeah. hard to tell. Mm. Especially when you've got a couple of gullies, you know, shooting some pretty pretty strong wind down them. You've you've got to sort of get an average. Well, I would sort of be inclined to look at at obviously all the ranges. You know, dialing through your parallax to to sort of see what is actually happening and then making a determination of, uh, I just have to, did he say there was a wind direction shift dramatically there or just Okay, so we've got um, at the shooter, it's three o'clock, five mile an hour. Mm -hmm. At 500, it's complete switched. It's nine Mm o'clock, five mile an hour. And at a thousand metres, it's uh, 10 mile an hour from three. Okay. Yeah, I... There's no way of, of, I don't think there's a way of applying a definitive wind formula, like using a ballistics program to tell you, because it'd be quite difficult to give it, as I said, I don't think you could accurately determine that information. Mm. So you would have to look and then make a determination at what each of those winds effect is going to be. Yeah, on on a shooter app, you you can do wind zones. Yep. So you can actually, you know, put in multiple wind profiles between you and the target and that'll obviously calculate an average to put into the solution so that you can get a solution out of the calculator. But again, you're estimating, um, I guess it's just as accurate as your estimations of your of your ind- individual zones. So it's, it's as good as, as, as your worst estimate. I guess. Yeah, um, we're we're always estimating with with wind, aren't we? I mean, interesting the numbers he's chosen uh, with wind where your location and wind at five hundred meters have counteracted each other, um, five from the left, five from the right. Um, mm. But um, yeah, it's it's not. I actually got the same question last night at the Impact Dynamics catch up, um, and of course, yeah, the the question that that followed into was, well, which is more important, wind at your shooting location or wind at your target? Mm. Um, and went with the uh, the old answer of well the only one you can probably actually get a proper reading on is the one at your location mm. so that's the only one that's going to be pretty much 100% right so 
that's the most important because yeah. it's actually correct. Yeah. You calibrate uh, uh, off not, not not to yeah. say that what's downrange isn't important, but you, you're only guessing. Yeah, I mean, I, I've and probably both of you have seen it as well with the at the property we we conduct a lot of the shooting courses on yeah. and that sort of thing. There's there's a a particular shooting spot which is we do a lot of shooting from, where if you were just to look at the lay of the land from the shooting position, yep. you don't really see the terrain. Now, there's actually some really big gullies there, and I've I've witnessed where pretty much what he he outlines in his email mm. there, where you'll get wind blowing directly left to right or right to left. And you wind through the parallax and you hit about that 800 meter mark and it switches 100, like 180 degrees around. Yeah. And uh, I was talking with uh, with our, uh, with Dan on the weekend, Sam, when we were out and um, mm -hmm. and he said he was making wind calls for a, another shooter there some time ago. And uh, he basically made a call of, okay, well, hold zero. Don't hold any wind because you're basically getting counteracting. And at 1,000 meters, he was on the money. That's that's the exact story I told last night, actually, <laughs> where, you where you had, yeah, wind wind that just was gone everywhere, and and Dan told the shooter, look, hold hold dead on, and the shooter went, you serious? He mm. said, just just humour me, try it out, bang, centre of target. Yeah, mm. it's um, it's it's not a uh, is doesn't seem to be a quick simple little thing. I mean, you can work out time of flights through the zones, how much deviation can be made off of that, but. It's there's too many unknowns. I still think with, that's with, exactly with not right. knowing. I mean, the only way you could know those wind speeds and directions is if you had a flags or wind sensors out there that, that gave you feedback. But yeah. in a, particularly in a field environment, you're reliant on you know what you've got to look at as far as you know, trees, leaves, grass, yeah. etc. The other thing that doesn't doesn't really give in in this um, the data that that um, Dean is sent to us would be the zone so it says at 500 it's giving us this wind but does that does that does that wind kick in at 100 through to 500 yeah, or right. is it is it predominant is it, from 100 through to 500 mm, yeah, switches or, or, yeah mm. or is it is it is it you know the the five mile an hour from the um what do you say three nine o'clock from 100 meters out to 900 meters and then changes at the end um yeah so i mean if you were to have a wind that was sort of predominant left to right for example from one to 500 and at 500 meters there was a gully that switched the wind back yep. but that was only for a relatively short distance and then from six to 900 it switched the other way you would have to give the the wind switch less sort of uh credit i guess or less yeah. allowance than you would if it was a, a big band of that particular wind pattern and while we've been discussing it the wind's changed Again, yes. yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so it, it, look, it is, Dean. It is. It's a great question. It's a perfect topic. Um, it's a tough one, um, and there is a, a fair amount that just comes down to practice, experience, observation, uh, training, and and spending time doing mm. it. Um, sorry, Greg. Go. Yeah, for it. I think there's another element to that question, Rusty, yep. where he actually talks about missed. how do you make your corrections. So, is he suggesting you know once you have that first crack? How do you get on? He I doesn't, but we can we can certainly talk about it. What would you do? Oh, okay. I'd um, hold. Hold. Yeah, exactly. Hold over. So I think he talked about would you hold over or he, dial? Uh, he said, how do you go about correcting either by hold over or dial for varying winds? I think it's yeah, he's saying what, ignore off, that aspect yeah. um, and, and answer the other question. But yeah, we, gentlemen in the room, do you dial or hold your wind? Yeah, quite often for me anyway. Um, I'll initially dial, if time permits, of course. I'll initially dial, and then my corrections from that are usually hold over, hold off, hold under, whatever's needed based on the impact of the round. And that's that's typically how I do it with, with first focal plane reticule. Makes it pretty straightforward process. Um, yep. I know. How about you guys? Well, I've, I've always dialed elevation. And held wind because I mean I've used yeah, okay. scopes with a with enough markings on the reticle itself, you know, particularly on the the windage crosshair. Yeah. So I'm only holding on that line because I've dialed the elevation. Mm. And if I need to hold, you know, two and a half mils, it's it's the, the right there. I mean, good reticles have got enough reference points that you just hold, and then you can see clearly mm. if you're impacting left or right, yep. presuming you got your elevation right. Mm. Um, it's a pretty quick hold change to make. I found it probably because I'm stupid. I can get lost in dialing wind 
because mm. it's so variable. It can switch and yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so I just found a lot easier to hold it. Yeah, I definitely just hold my, my breath and pray. That's about all I do. Do you pull the <laughs> do you pull the trigger at some stage? Yeah, just yeah, just yeah. just bit of that and just you know, let her rip. A little prayer and hopefully we 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 contact. No, um, generally hold. The only time I will die because I'm stupid like you, Andrew, and and I I lose myself in uh, in rotations on wind. So the only time I do dial, uh, and it's pretty uncommon, is if we're seeing a real heavy predominant wind that is not going away. You know, if we've got a, mm. a fairly constant 20 mile an hour plus wind from one side and it's just, it's there, it's there, it's there, and, and you go, okay, well, I'm going to dial for 20 yeah, and then I'll hold for the baseline variation. Baseline it close to target. Yeah. yeah, that's probably the only time I do it. And, and even then, I'll do it reluctantly because I know that I'll probably turn it back the wrong way and end up shooting someone else's target. Mm. Well, I think, I mean, I, correct me if I'm... At least that's a hit, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. correct. Counts. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think um, <laughs> a lot of the F-Class guys, they dial everything. Um, correct me if I'm wrong on that, but... How are we going to correct you? <laughs> I thought you boys were F-Class gurus. <laughs> no. Oh, hang on. No. <laughs> yeah. Could be. No, I, I, do, I do believe you're right, but I also am not going to say I know much about F-Class. Yeah, because don't those guys pretty much wait for a particular wind and then wrap it? A to, lot to of, an extent, you know, a like lot they'll of wait fixed, for a particular wind condition they're dialed for and then quickly fire off. Yeah, a lot of fixed range competitions will do that. You know, even Ventress mm. guys, they'll wait for a pattern they want to shoot on and then they'll, you know, they'll use a very short amount of their time to get all their rounds off. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that makes sense for that kind of it does, doesn't it? Yeah. You know, shooting, but uh, it's not really my cup of tea. I prefer the sort of the field shooting, whether it be yeah, field target or hunting. Yeah, and a bit more dynamic. Gonna, I mean, I guess you get the odd opportunity where there might be a mob of goats or something. Mm-hmm. You get multiple shots, but they tend to move. They do. Yeah. So notice that pretty usually quick. into Sean's the first shot. Yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah. Very good. Yeah. Oh, excellent. So, and I just let me just check Facebook, make sure. I thought we might have had a question on there at some point. Yeah, while Rusty's having a look, just uh, if anyone's got any questions. Um, Make sure you put them up on the the podcast Facebook page, and um, we'll answer them on the next podcast. We'll attempt to. Attempt to. We'll waffle on about them for a while. All right, here we go. There is one. I thought there might have been. Okay, so this is from Tony. Uh, come through Facebook. Um, his new scope turned up, and he's stoked. Uh, he thought he's thought to himself. Uh, the Leopold mounts aren't going to cut it and off to a, to a gun shop and he bought himself an American Defence Delta mount. It's a one-piece job with uh, two quick detached levers and clamps on tight. Uh, however, my height over bore is now huge, like 60 mil huge. So to the crux of the question, uh, will this affect my available elevation at 700 to 1,000 metres? Or have any other adverse effects? I'm running a 20 MOA rail also. I, I wouldn't have thought so. I mean, presuming he's not talking about the underside of the objective bell being 60 mil off the barrel, which would be huge. Um, I don't. I can't imagine it would be that high off. Um, um, no, height over bore, I guess that's... So Center line, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I would say probably not. Uh, probably wouldn't affect. What uh, what scope is he running there, Rusty? Uh, night force of some sort. Yeah, probably got plenty of elevation in there, and he said he's running a 20 MOA rail as well. I I would think probably wouldn't be an issue, personally. So, what's your thoughts, Greg? Well, mine. Are, I'm I'm not a hundred percent sure what the impact would be. I'd, but personally, I'd probably just jump on the couch and um, bring up the ballistic calculator and just play with the scope height and and um, see if I can model a um, a difference. Uh, oh, I mean, it'd, it'd be quite easy to put all that information mm, into yeah. you know, AB or something like mm, that. Mm. I I don't think it's it's not going to sort of adversely affect your ability to to dial on at those ranges though. Is what I think is what he's asking. Yeah, um, mine's mine's worse than yours, Tony. Don't worry about it. Um, not that, not the the gun you're looking at, Andrew, but um, the the mount that usually sits on that gun because um, that's got a different scope on at the moment. Uh, is usually around um, was about two point nine inches. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, I mean, I guess it's yeah, inher- okay. an inherent, and that'll go to a mile fairly comfortably. Yeah, it's an inherent issue with one-piece mounts, uni-mount type setups, they do add 
considerable height over you know what you can do with conventional type rings generally speaking yeah usually but i mean it's i don't think if you've got the ability to to set your stock up to suit mm. so your position is right and you, you i think know, yeah you raise a really good point that's probably more important that you can get your eye relief correct and you get your head in the right position to be able to see through that scope yeah if you can do that I don't think you necessarily lose um, lose much. You can account for it. Just make sure that your data is correct. Because I've seen guys who have, what have we seen? We've we've seen guys put in, um, like fifty millimeters, say as the height, uh, but they've had the setting as inches, so they put in a fifty inch scope height <laughs> setting. Be for extreme range shooting. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, which didn't quite gave some unusual data. <laughs> but I think Greg, you raised probably the best point is just. Just put the data into a, a ballistics program, and you'll see what what effect it has for you. Yeah, no, get stuck into it, Tony. Take it out and shoot, mate. Take it out and shoot. Very good. All right, guys. Well, I think that's probably about uh, all we'll cover for our season opener. Um, there is some uh, pretty exciting uh, interviews coming up, hopefully, and uh, then we've got us again as well. Um, but one of the things that we are hoping to see this uh, this season, this year season. Anyway, uh, this this time around um, is that we will, in our group of three, will become a group of four with a guest each time we are chatting. So hopefully if all the technology catches up, or more to the point, my understanding of the technology catches up, we will be able to have all three of us in this room, one person anywhere in the world, and we'll be chatting to them as well. So it'll hopefully bring a little bit of diversity to the, uh, the knowledge bank, um, or add to the knowledge bank. Sounds good. Yeah. Yeah, excellent. All right, guys. Well, enjoy enjoy whatever it is you've got on this week. Are you guys shooting this weekend at all? Yeah. No, I'm I'm going to have a crack at taking the thermal out after deer uh, on Sunday morning. So we're going to actually go out at like three in the morning, try and get the deer wow. while they're, they're pretty active. Um, is that just in case it wasn't dark enough at 10 o'clock? Yeah, no. It's, so it's, your thermal it's, didn't kick in mainly, until... Yeah, I normally go in the morning and... and when that sun first comes up, they, they, they start to scatter into their like, sort of hides for the day. So we want to try and get them out feeding and, and uh, yeah, see if I can knock a few over. Very good. I did have one more thing to talk about briefly, really quickly. Um, I tried those uh, Nosla RDFs, the new Nosla uh, reduced drag factor, I think, um, in my 260. And they went very well. They shot very, very good, well, good. Um, from what I'm told, from the guy who shot them, because I didn't get the time to get out there and do it. But mm. uh, I will be out and having a crack with them on Friday. Yep. So I'll do a bit of a, a bit of a report on how they've gone, but they seem pretty darn good. It'd be good if there's another good prodgy choice out there. It'll be it'll be great. So if they if they work well, I'll be running them in that 260, and then I also I might even run them in the 23 in the 70 grainer. Yeah, yeah. So because I've got a one in eight barrel coming. Yep. Nice. So we'll see how it goes. Very good. good. Awesome. All right, guys. Thanks for listening. Send us any questions you want, uh, any requests, and we'll either answer them or ignore them accidentally. And uh, we, uh, yeah, catch you again soon. Cheers. See you later. Thanks for listening to the Precision Shooting Podcast. To continue the discussion, check out our Facebook page. And for more information, head to our website, www.precisionshootingpodcast.com.au. This episode was brought to you by Projectile Warehouse. Find your perfect projectile.